currently in something called New Age Beliefs. This isn't necessarily atheism, but it is a New Age ideology that is circled around psychics and reincarnation and astrology and all sorts of New Age ideas. Now, it's interesting is that as we see the rise of secularism and even a rise in atheism, the belief that there is no God, you'd think that some of these New Age beliefs would go down and how many people are believing in them. But in a, in a somewhat new survey that was taken of Americans, 63% of Americans are currently attending a church which has dropped quite a bit. I think as we look at this survey, 42% of U.S. adults believe in some kind of spiritual energy located among physical things. 41% believe that there is some kind of power in psychics. 33% believe in reincarnation. And 29% believe in astrology. Overall, 62% of Americans that were surveyed believed in at least one of these types of New Age beliefs. Now again, as we see a rise in secularism and in atheism, you'd think that these beliefs would go down, but they're actually going further and further up in the American culture. And why do you think this is? Why do you think people are running towards these beliefs? Why do you think it's easier for people to say that you can be reincarnated or that there's truth in astrology or that these psychics actually have some kind of power? And it really is a rejection of God and his word. The world turns away from God and his word and what he has said, and they turn towards what I would call paganism. We're going to see an example of paganism in Acts chapter 17 this morning. We've all probably heard the word pagan or paganism. It's just a belief in some other type of God or power or energy that is not the God of the Bible. Now, in the Bible, we see paganism mostly associated with idol worship. And I don't think we see as many people, at least in America, that are worshiping idols. Yet I think America is an idolatrous nation. Why do I say that? Because they put something that is not God on the seat of their hearts. They would say it's crazy to believe in a God who made the world. And yet they think that their loved ones who have died have been reincarnated in some other type of person or animal or spiritual force. They would say that it is crazy to think about a God who sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for their sins. And yet they embrace astrology and all this new age belief. And we need to be careful about how we interact with people and how we present to them the truth of the gospel. There's many people who would call themselves spiritual without actually understanding the Spirit of God and what it says through his word. Paul faces paganism here in Acts 17. He goes to the city of Athens, and he starts interacting with all these Greek people who had all these different kinds of gods and goddesses. They had a god of lightning and a god of war and a god of the sun. And in fact, they had so many different gods and goddesses, and they were so worried about it that they set up an idol that was called the idol to the unknown God, just in case they left any of them out. They said, we just want to make sure it kind of catches all of them. So what does Paul do? He does something that I would call apologetics. And it's in your sermon 
handout in the bulletin. I'm calling this sermon Apologetics in Athens. Now, we've all heard of the word apology, and sometimes we misunderstand that word. As I, When I was a kid, if I did something to one of my siblings, my mom would say, apologize to them right now. We always think that word means you're saying you're sorry, you're, you're asking for their forgiveness, you're confessing to what you've done. But actually, to give an apology, to do apologetics, is to give a reason for something. So sometimes you can give an apology, but you cannot actually be sorry because you're giving the reason for why you did something. Now, your reasoning may be wrong. You might admit, hey, this is what I thought. I was wrong. I'm sorry. But just because you're giving an apology does not mean that you are sorry or that you have remorse. So when we give, when we do apologetics, and you've probably heard this word before, we are giving a reason, an argument. We are giving the reasons for why we believe what we believe as Christians, why we believe the Bible, why we believe there is a God. First Peter 3.15 says, Always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, within the world of apologetics, there's some famous people that debate and they write books and they give arguments for who God is, and I'm thankful for those people. But First Peter 3.15 is not just written to people who have a PhD or who have some kind of biblical studies degree. It's written to Christians in fact, the book of 1 Peter was written to Christians who were slaves and who probably didn't have any formal, any formal education at all. And yet he says, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in you. And I'm not saying any of us this morning are going to get into a debate with an atheist that's going to be live. I'm not saying that any of us are going to write books on why there is a God. But what I am saying is that we should be ready to give a reason for why we believe in our faith. And so what I want us to see this morning is this. It's that our pagan culture desperately needs the gospel. Paul faced paganism in Acts 17. We face paganism today in a different form. It's people who do not want to put God on the center of their lives. And so how do we combat that? How do we meet that? We meet it with the gospel. And that's what we're going to see Paul do. So first of all, what I want us to see is a pagan community. I want us to see a pagan community in verses 16 through 21. We're going to look at several different characteristics of the city of Athens. We're going to compare it to our own culture that we live in in America. Look at verse 16 with me. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within them because he saw that the city was full of idols. We catch up with Paul as he's in Athens. If you remember when he left Berea, Silas and Timothy were with him, but the situation became dire and Paul had to travel separately by himself to the city of Athens. Timothy and Silas were left behind. And so we see Paul in Athens by himself. We're going to get a story about Paul as he's witnessing to these people in Athens. Now, what was the city of Athens? If you've probably heard of it before, it was the central capital of the Greek empire when Alexander the Great was in rule. It had a sizable Greek population that had dwindled somewhat when the Romans took power. And it contained a couple massive centers of architecture there. I think we have a couple pictures that we can show of them. That is the... Parthenon, it's a center of Greek idolatry and paganism. It was a temple that was dedicated to the Greek gods 
there, dedicated actually to Athena, and it towered over the city. It was 1,000 feet tall and about 500 feet wide. Now, this was located in the Acropolis, which was a collection of these large buildings and temples that was in Greece, that was in Athens. And so as Paul is walking through this area, he's seeing all these temples and all these buildings, and he's also seeing idolatry. He's seeing all of these different idols, and it says he's observing this and that his spirit is provoked. He's upset. This really starts to irk Paul. He's stimulated, he's stirred, and he's frightened because he's people watching and he's seeing all of this idolatry coming to the surface. So the first thing we notice about Athens is that it has idolatry. Look at verse 17. As Paul's walking through it, it says, So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So we've seen that this is Paul's custom, right? He goes to the synagogue. There was a Jewish population there. Those would be the people that Paul could most readily identify with. They believed in one God. They believed in the God of the Old Testament. And they at least had an expectation of a Messiah. So Paul is reasoning in the synagogues with Jewish people and then with faithful Greek people who believe that there was one God as well. But that's not the only thing we see Paul do. We see that he's reasoning also in the marketplace. He's going to the marketplace probably to get food, to meet people, and it was a large area that Paul was in. And he starts to share the gospel with these people. He starts to reason with them about the Christian faith. Look at verse 18. It says, Some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with them. And some said, What does this babbler wish to say? And others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. So Paul starts to get into discussions with different intellectuals, people who have somewhat of a higher knowledge and understanding than just common people. And I'll explain who the Epicureans are and who the Stoics are in a moment. But we see that both of these groups are philosophers. Philosophy is the fundamental study of the nature of knowledge. You can have a philosophy of worship. You can have a philosophy of ministry. You can have a philosophy of life. It's just what do you believe about knowledge? How do you believe that things should be organized and should be done? Now, if you've been to college, you've taken a class probably called Introduction to Philosophy or Philosophy 101. When I was in college, I had to take Introduction to Philosophy. It was at 7 a.m. on Tuesdays and Thursdays. I don't remember very much at all of any of it because the professor was just so much smarter than I was. And as I'm still waking up, he's explaining all these terms and definitions and getting into philosophical debates. And I'm just trying to let my coffee wake me up and get caffeine into my system so that I can pay attention to what's going on. So I don't know why they put that class at 7 a.m. But my knowledge of philosophy is a little bit hindered because of that. These two different people that Paul meets are called the Epicureans and the Stoics. The Epicureans were practical atheists. They really didn't believe that there was a God that existed, but they were very motivated about pleasure of self. Everything should be pursued that is good for yourself, that brings you pleasure, that brings you help, and you should try to avoid suffering. They followed a man named Epicurus, and they tried to avoid pain as much as possible. 
One of their quotes is that there is nothing to fear in God and nothing to feel in death. So that was the Epicureans. And again, think about how that relates to people we meet today. They say there is no God. They try to live on their own. They want to feel and have pleasure and just live for the moment. And they want to avoid suffering and pain as much as possible. The second group was the, was the Stoics. The Stoics followed the teachings of a man named Zeno. They were polytheists who tried to join together polytheism and philosophy. So they believed in many gods and goddesses, and they had this deep philosophy as well. They tried to argue for the unity of mankind with the divine. One of the things we'll notice as we look at some of these Greek gods and goddesses, they act like people. They have sins like people do. They really take on this character of humanity. That's what sets God, the God of the Bible, apart from them because God is holy, because God is set apart, because God does not sin. He's righteous. He's just. And these Greek gods and goddesses that we'll look at, they're just like people. They have the same problem. And why is that? Because they're not real and they're based on the human experience. And so this is what the Stoics are trying to do. They're different from the Epicureans, but they're trying to blend together this philosophy and this paganism. So those two groups are mentioned here, and they're arguing with Paul, and they call him a babbler. Now this word babbler refers to a bird that would go around and pick up scraps and maybe dispense scraps. So the idea is that Paul is a man who's going around and he's just hearing stuff and he's dispensing it. You ever heard someone there's talking or they're giving you an answer and they're saying something that you really don't think they understand? The best way I can, way I can describe this is when I was teaching. A student would give me an answer and they'd talk or they'd write something down and I would think, there's no way you came up with that. You had to get that from the internet. You had to get that from someone else. In fact, I had one student on an assignment. He was copying the answer key, and I found out he was copying the answer key because at the end of his answer, it said some students' answers may vary, but most should say something like this. And so I went up to him and I said, I think you've been cheating on your assignments. And he said, no, I haven't. I showed him his answer, and he said, yes, I have. (laughs) And you can just tell that it wasn't actually his thoughts. And that's what they accused Paul of doing. They said, you're just hearing all these thoughts about God and about philosophy, but you don't actually know what they mean. They called him a babbler. Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching of Jesus and the resurrection. Now, the Greek people didn't have a concept for the resurrection. They didn't have a concept for men who could be resurrected after they died. They didn't have a concept for Christ being resurrected after his death. So this sounded very strange to them. But because they're Athenians or Greeks, because they're into all these different beliefs and philosophies and gods and goddesses, this actually appeals to them. They want to hear more about this, but mainly because they want to be entertained. So we see that they're skeptical. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that the wisdom of the gospel is foolishness to the world. These people are skeptical of what Paul is saying. Now look with me at verse 19. It says, And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. Now as I was reading commentaries and books on this this week, people are somewhat divided on why they took him there. Some people think he was on trial, that they were upset that he was preaching this, that they were trying to condemn Paul and maybe even put him in prison. 
But we've seen Paul go to prison several times in Acts. We're going to see him go to prison again later. And this isn't really what I think is going on here. I think these Greek people are really curious at what Paul is saying. In fact, they say, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. Look at verse 20. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. They're really interested in finding out what Paul's philosophy is. And we all know people like this. We know people that are into new fads and fashions, and maybe they've even called themselves a Christian for a while. But they don't really want to know who God is. They don't really want to have a relationship with him, but they want to be entertained. They want to hear something new. And that's why these churches that promote new theology and new ideas and all of these different new fads and trends that really try to captivate people, they will gain a following for a while. But eventually the human heart, the human fickleness will drive them away to somewhere else. And so these people want to hear what Paul's saying, but I don't necessarily think it's because they're trying to throw him in prison. But I'm also not convinced it's because they truly want to become Christians. But Paul wants to take this opportunity to share the gospel with them. Now, one thing that I think we should notice about the Greek people that were living in Athens is verse 21, because I think this is a fascinating statement. Now, all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing of something new. This was all they wanted to spend their time on. And in fact, I called it in our notes, intellectualism. They want to just hear of new ideologies, new trends, new fads. They want to be entertained. They want to find something new. I'm constantly hearing from people that the human attention span is shortening, that you can't keep people's attention for as long as you used to be able to because of social media and Facebook and Twitter and everything's becoming shortened and you can watch these videos on Facebook and they're 15 to 20 seconds long and then you go to the next one and you can spend so much time just looking for new things and yet we see these people what are they doing they just want to tell about new things and experience new things and again i think the paganism that paul saw in his day is the same paganism that we see in our day as well this last friday i was over in Terre Haute. alicia and i were going to get our marriage license but i was waiting on her to get off work so I went to a coffee shop and I was finishing my sermon. I was actually working on this section of my sermon. And two men, two older men, are sitting in the back loudly arguing about philosophy and about even the Bible and if the Bible is inspired or not. And it was honestly a little bit frustrating as I'm trying to just work on my sermon. And these guys are just loudly talking about their philosophy and about what they believe. You could tell that one of the older gentlemen had been through several different belief systems in his life, being an atheist, being a Christian, being a new science. Oh, I forget what that's called, but people who believe in scientism, there's a word for it that I'm losing right now. There's all these different types of ideologies that he had been a part of and that he had believed and nothing had satisfied him. And the other older man to, man to his credit I think truly did believe the Christian gospel and was trying to witness to him. Now, they were talking very loudly. Like I said, it was a little bit frustrating as I was trying to work on what I was working on. But it just, again, I think illustrates our culture and how we go from one thing to another and we're never satisfied. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes that there's nothing new under the sun, but all things are vanity. 
Steve Lawson, one of my favorite preachers, he often says that new theology is often old heresy. So people who have these new theological ideas, and no one has ever thought about this before, usually it's some old heresy that someone has believed for many years. We see this culture of paganism in the city of Athens, and we see it in our world today as well. We're facing a culture that's increasingly pagan, from music to entertainment to lifestyle to education. They believe in selfish and idolatrous practices. They try to go from one thing to the other. You might say, well, they don't worship idols. They don't have false gods. So what's the big deal? They're not really pagans. They worship the idols of their heart. You see, truly in paganism and in idolatry, there is this desire at the center of it that wants to put man in the place of God. As we look at some of these Greek gods and goddesses that we'll see later on, Zeus and Athena, they all have these different sin habits and practices. And why is that? They were truly acting like men. Man wants to put himself where God should be at the center of his heart. This is idolatry. We see idolatry in our culture today. People looking for something else to satisfy them other than God. We see people looking for their own pleasure as well. Rejecting what God has for them. They're like the Epicureans. They're looking for whatever is going to satisfy them, bring them happiness, bring them pleasure. They're trying to avoid pain and suffering as much as possible. Scripture tells us that true happiness, true pleasure, true satisfaction and contentment is in the Lord. And when Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, he doesn't mean he can do whatever he wants. He says, I can be content in every situation, even if that is suffering. The Stoics tried to marry this philosophy and this pagan idolatry together, trying to blend in what they believed about the gods and goddesses and what they believed about how life works. We know that everything that is essential to life, everything that we believe about how life works, comes from the Bible, comes from the Word of God. So why are we saying all this? Why does Luke record this? I think as we try to witness to people, we need to understand the culture that is around them, the culture that people are coming from. Now, some try to do this by conforming to the culture, by acting like the culture around us. And we shouldn't do that. But we do need to understand where these people are coming from, what their backgrounds are, and how we can then share the gospel with them. So we see this pagan culture in the first several verses. Let's look secondly at a reasonable argument. Reasonable argument. And this is going to be in verses 22 through 31. Look with me at verse 22 as Paul begins to reason and to argue with these people. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive in every way that you are very religious. Men of Athens would be a common greeting for people during that time, especially in the city of Athens. He says, I perceive that you're very religious. You might think, well, he's trying to compliment them or maybe even flatter them. That word religious could also mean superstitious or devout. I think Paul is recognizing that these people genuinely have a desire to understand how life works, to believe in a creator, to believe in a God, but they're just misguided and they're twisted in how they understand 
all of these all of these things. Now look at this example that he gives in verse 23. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an, an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Like I said earlier, they had all of these gods and goddesses there. They had Zeus, the god of lightning, Athena, the god of wisdom, Ares, the god of war, all of these different gods and goddesses, more than you could ever count or imagine, but they were afraid of missing one. They were afraid that there might be a god out there that existed and they didn't have a relationship with and they didn't know. And so they said, we're just going to have this altar to the unknown god. And whatever gods are out there that we haven't gotten, we're just going to worship him. and We're going to bring sacrifices to him. And so Paul sees the statue. He's provoked by it or amused by it. And he brings this up to them. He says, I think you're religious. I think you're superstitious. You believe all these things about these gods. You even have this idol to the unknown God. What Paul's going to do, he's going to use this as a launching pad into the gospel. Look at what he says. He says, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. What Paul is really saying is that there, you think there's a God out there that hasn't revealed himself to you, that hasn't spoken to you, that doesn't have a relationship with you. And really, in the Greek culture, these gods and goddesses were not personal. In mythology, the only reason they interacted with humans was to use them, was to get them to serve them, or was to take advantage of them or even abuse them. That is not the God of the Bible. So Paul says, hey, you think there's this unknown God out there? Let me tell you about a God who is speaking to you, who has revealed himself to you. And who has a message of salvation for you. He says, what you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. These idols that they would make, they would make it themselves. They would make it out of stone and wood and gold and silver. And they would form these gods in their own image, in their own likeness. Paul says, let me tell you about a God who is not like us, who you don't have to make, who you don't have to feed, who you don't have to serve, but he's actually the God who made the world, who made heaven and earth and everything that is in it. And Paul says he doesn't live in temples made by man. We see this throughout scripture, that God cannot be contained to a temple. Now you might argue, well, there is a temple in the Old Testament. Yes, there is. But there wasn't a temple for thousands of years. And even when the temple was destroyed, God did not stop being God. It was just the center of where they worshipped him. But as we've seen earlier in Acts, God can't be contained to a temple. He can't be contained to a building or a box or an idol because he is all present. Because he made everything. He says, he doesn't dwell in these temples made by man, verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Some of these pagan beliefs, they thought you had to feed your God and put him to sleep and do all these things to try to serve him. Paul says, God doesn't need any of that. God is set apart. He's self-existing. He doesn't need you to serve him, but he gives life and breath and food and water and shelter to all who are his children. 
He says, he himself gives life, gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So God is the one from whom all of mankind exists and continues on. This is who God is. And we see, we're seeing that he's very different from how they understood God to be. Now, why did the Greek people believe this? Where did they come up with this? I think, again, you're seeing them. They're trying to make God in their image. These gods and goddesses had sin issues. They needed to be served. They often looked like humans and how they were depicted. God is not made in the image of man. Man is made in the image of God. In Genesis 1.26, he says, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. And again, we see the world. They even do this today. We try to twist God around. Even people would say they're Christians. They'd say God is love. But God isn't often the love that they're trying to describe. They're saying God is love, so he's tolerant. So he lets me do this. I can live this sinful lifestyle because God is love. Actually, God gets to set the standard for what love actually is. So Paul is explaining who God is, how he created the world, how he created heaven, how he created mankind. Look at verse 26. He said he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined and allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. So he refers back to Adam, how Adam was the first man and how God made Adam and how from Adam everyone else was created. Now, some people think that God made mankind. They believe in Genesis, but they said, you know what? God just lets man do whatever they want. He just kind of starts it and he just, they just see whatever kind of chaos ensues after that. Whatever kind of chaos the world is going to be in. And they say that is why the world is evil. No, God didn't just make man and just let them go live off on their own and do whatever they want. But he's sovereign over the people that he created. He says that he determined allotted periods of times. He knows how long each of us are going to live. Hebrews said, there is appointed unto man once a day to die, and after that, the judgment. God knows how many years we have on this earth, down to the day, down to the second. Nothing takes God by surprise. He says he appointed the boundaries. He knows where you're going to live. He knows who you're going to be around. He knows what gender you were supposed to be. He knows what family you were supposed to have. He knows what circumstances you were supposed to be in. Oftentimes when we're upset, we say, I wish I wasn't part of this family. I wish I wasn't in this situation. I wish I didn't have all these problems. We're really upset at God. Because God put us in the situations that he's made us to be in. You have the parents that you were meant to have. You have the circumstances you were meant to be in. You might say, well, I don't like them. I wish they could change. That's too bad because God knows better than we do. And there are times in life where we have to say, God has put me in this circumstance. He's put me in the situation. I don't know as well as he does, and I need to trust in his sovereignty. Paul's saying, let me introduce you to a God who is in control of all things. And why does man reject God? Because they don't want to be under God's control. But they want to do things on their own. Guess what? If God let us do things on our own, he just didn't interfere at all, we would all die. We would all cease to exist. None of us would continue. 
Verse 27, he did all this. He made man. He gave them allotted periods of time and boundaries. Why? That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. So he's saying that God made man and he made man to have fellowship with God. We often forget that because man has sinned. But God didn't want to be distant from us. God wanted to have fellowship with man. And in the Garden of Eden, God had fellowship with man. It says that he walked with them, that he was there with them in the garden. And in fact, when Adam and Eve sinned, what was God doing? He was walking through the earth. Now, why does God not walk physically like they saw? Well, because mankind sinned. But that doesn't negate the fact that God is still omnipresent. Yes, God is holy. He can't be in the place of sin. But yet God is still everywhere. He's always present. How does that work? You've got to ask God. It's something we don't can't quite comprehend in our human finite minds. But God wants mankind to seek him. And he uses this word. It's really interesting. He says that they should feel their way towards him. It means to search, to grope, to look for something. And it has the idea of looking for something in the dark. How many of you have had the lights off? You've gone to bed. You're all settled. And then you think, oh, I forgot to take my medicine. I forgot to do this. I forgot to set this out. I forgot to put the trash out for the next day. So you have to go through the dark. You have to look for things in the dark. When I was a freshman in college, I had a roommate. He went to bed very early compared to all the rest of the college students. He was probably the smartest of all of us. But he had a pretty early bedtime in comparison to me. And so when he would go to bed, I would often come in an hour or two later and go to sleep. And he would have the lights off, and I would try to find things in the dark. Now, my first couple weeks of trying to do this, I was not very good at it. I'd trip over things. I would run into things. In fact, one night he just told me, turn the light on so you can find out where you're supposed to go. Because it was more distracting for him, for me trying to look for things and feeling around the room. But eventually, I feel like I got pretty good at trying to find things in the dark. And I had this system of getting ready for bed and doing everything in the dark and hopping into bed and not having him wake up at all. And I can remember just that feeling of feeling around and just knowing that certain things were going to be where I needed them. And in the same way, Paul says mankind is trying to feel after God, trying to find God, but with this idea of blindness. Do you understand from scripture that In the Old Testament and the New Testament, God tells man that they're spiritually blind, that they cannot understand the things of God, that they can't understand his character or themselves. And so this idea of this word that Paul uses, that they should seek God, that they should feel their way toward him, has the idea of mankind looking for God in the dark. They don't understand where he is. And he says he's actually not that far from each one of us. So mankind is looking for God. In fact, why do you think they had all these Greek gods and goddesses? They said someone had to make this all. Someone had to make the heaven and the earth, but they could not see God because the eyes of their hearts are blind. Paul says this in so many other places in Ephesians 4. He talks about how the people who don't know God, how unsaved people They're darkened in their understanding. They cannot see God. They're separated from him. In 2 Corinthians 4, it talks about how the God of this world, Satan, blinded the hearts 
of mankind. But in salvation, God causes light to shine into darkness so that they can see his gospel. So what Paul's trying to say is that this thing you've been looking for, how you've been trying to find God and how you've made all these other gods and goddesses, he's right there in front of you. I used the illustration earlier about looking for something in the dark. How many of you have looked for something in the dark and then you've turned the lights on and it's been right there in front of you? I can remember going to wake one of my brothers up and it was dark and it was pitch black. I couldn't see any one of them and I'm reaching for the light, but I can't find it. And when I go to turn the light on, he's right there in front of me. And I screamed and jumped back a little bit. And I said, never do that to me again. And he couldn't see me as well. So he was afraid. When we understand the gospel, when some of these people would be saved, the light of the gospel would shine into their hearts and they would see what's been in front of them the entire time. Maybe this was your experience when you were saved. You were in darkness. You didn't understand God. But when you got saved, you said, yes, this makes sense. This has been here the whole time. God hasn't changed. None of this is new to him. But for us who are spiritually blind, we do not understand where God is. Paul's going to use a couple different quotes in this next verse to show these Greek people how they've actually had this concept of God. Look at the first one in verse 28. It says, for in him we live and move and have our being. This comes from a Greek philosopher named Epimenides. This was at the end of one of his poems. And what Paul is trying to show is that this God is sustaining us, how we have our life and our consistency through God. The second quote is from a Greek philosopher named Erastus, and it says, for we are indeed his offspring. So two different Greek quotes. And what is he trying to do? He's trying to say, you have actually been looking for this God, this God who created you, this God that you come from, this God that is sustaining your life. You've had this concept for God already. You just haven't realized it yet. Verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by art and imagination of man. This is what we've been saying. What are they trying to do with God? They're trying to make God in their own image out of gold, out of silver, out of stone. They're crafting it. They're making it in their own image, something that they've seen before. God is the only one that creates. He's the only one that can make something out of nothing. The rest of us can craft, can make, can form. We can't make something out of nothing. So these people, they're trying to make God in their own image. They're trying to make God look like them. Verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So Paul is explaining who God is. I do think this is a summary of his sermon. I don't think this is necessarily everything he said to them during this time. But he ends his sermon with a warning. He ends his sermon by saying, that there is a time where God is going to come back and judge the world. Now, it's interesting. He says that they've been in ignorance. 
We've talked about this either in sermons or in Bible studies here as a church. That mankind does not know who God is. And that God often judges people according to what they've been told, what has been revealed to them. I'll put it this way. If I gave students a quiz, if I was a teacher, and I gave them questions on the quiz that we'd never gone over in class, that we'd never looked at, I'd probably be more gracious to them if they got those questions wrong than if I'd ask them the same question every day and they still got it wrong on the test. In the same way, it says that God has overlooked their ignorance. Now, does that mean that they're not still accountable to God? No. Does that mean that they won't still have to face an eternity without God if they are unsaved? No, and why is that? Romans chapter 1, God spoke to mankind through creation. They could see God in creation, who he is. They might not have known he was the God of the Bible, but they can see through creation that there is a God. So they're still accountable to him. But there is this aspect throughout Scripture that those who have more revelation from God are held more accountable. Let me take you to one passage. Go to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. We're going to see Christ and how he explains this. Let's start in verse 20. It says, Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For mighty works done, for if the mighty works done to you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable in the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades, for mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom. It would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment in the land of Sodom than in the land for you. What is he saying? Well, Jesus is talking to three cities where he'd done some of his most prominent miracles, where he'd given some pretty clear proof that he is God. But what did they do? Each one of those cities rejected Christ. And so Christ says judgment is going to be more unbearable for you than it will be for the rest, for Tyre and Sidon and Sodom and Gomorrah. These were cities that were known for being evil. By the way, does that mean that those cities won't be judged? No. Well, no. Remember what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? God rained down fire and brimstone from heaven. So they're still accountable to God. They're still under God's sovereignty. They're still going to be judged by God. I don't think any of us want to have fire and brimstone rain down from heaven or that we would say that's God taking it easy on us. But in the same time, he's saying, I've given these cities more revelation and yet they have still rejected me. So it's going to be more intolerable on the day of judgment for them than for Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, what does that mean? That means that God holds all of us accountable for how he's revealed scripture to us. Now, I do think even those who haven't heard the gospel, when they die, they will still die an eternity separated from God if they haven't repented and believed the gospel because of what God has revealed to all mankind. But what Paul is saying here is that you were in ignorance. You'd not heard the gospel. So you have all these false gods and goddesses because you don't understand the God of the Bible. But he's saying, I'm preaching to you the gospel now. So now is the time of 
salvation. Don't wait longer to repent. I hear many people, even today, that say, yeah, I think there's a God. I believe in Jesus, but I'm just going to wait. I'm going to wait another year, another couple years, another decade. I'm going to wait till the end of my life. And right before I die, I'm going to repent. Don't be foolish. Be warned. Today is the day of salvation. Over and over and over again in Scripture, in the book of Hebrews, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart towards him. Repent. If God has revealed the gospel to you, if he's shared the gospel with you, repent. Don't continue on. I hear so many sad stories of people saying, I'm just going to wait a little bit longer. They die in a car accident. They lose their memory when they're older. They don't remember any of that. And that time where they were hearing the gospel from God, God is saying today is the day of salvation. And so Paul is bringing this somber warning to the Greek people in Athens. And he says, I'm explaining the gospel to you. Do not ignore it. You've been in this time of ignorance. Don't overlook God's gospel. He says he now commands people everywhere to repent, to turn from their ways. Verse 31, because he has fixed a day on which the whole world in righteousness, on which he will judge the whole world in righteousness. So there's a day, there's a fixed day where the Lord will return and he will bring judgment on this world. And Christ is the man clearly that I think is pictured here. And Christ says, I did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. And that is true in his first coming. But when he comes again, he says he will judge the world. He will bring this world to its knees. And how can we know this? How can we have confidence that God is going to do this? What does he say? He says, and of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. We sang about it last week. We celebrated it last week. It is such a glorious hope that we have in Christ that Jesus is risen from the dead. And we should be excited as Christians. But be warned, if you're not a Christian, if you're unsaved, the resurrection is also a promise that Jesus is coming again. And when he comes, he will judge the world. Christ is who he says he is. He is the son of God. And he will come back in judgment when he returns. This is Paul's argument. This is what he's telling these Athenians, these pagans. He's explaining to them who God is. He's giving them a concept for God. One of the things I want us to notice about this is that Paul doesn't explain the full gospel yet. He doesn't explain the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ yet. I think he would do that later. But he starts with just this concept of who God is. And why do you think he does that? Because they come from this pagan background, a polytheistic religion. And what they needed to understand right now is that there is one God, there is one gospel. And he holds them accountable for that, yes. But I do think there is more that Paul would say, that Paul did say, and that he would continue to say to them later. So Paul is explaining this gospel to 
the Athenians, he's giving an argument for who God is. And I think that this would take time. Now, Paul will have to leave Athens later. He's not able to stay there for many years like he did in other places. I think just as a word of suggestion or warning to us, as we share the gospel with people who have no concept of God, we sometimes have to start with the beginning. As Paul shares the gospel with Jews, they know there's a God, they know there's a Messiah in Christ, and that there would be a Messiah that would come one day. They just didn't know who Jesus was. So Paul at that moment says, this is the gospel. What we see Paul doing here is he has to take longer and explain more about who the God of the Bible is. And as you share the gospel with others, sometimes we can be frustrated and think, I just really want them to get it right now. But as our world becomes more pagan, further from God, I meet kids when I'm subbing and when I'm meeting just at schools and even as I'm in the neighborhood, they don't know who God is. They don't know who Jesus is. Kids don't go to church like they used to. They don't have this concept of who God is. So it takes longer. It takes more time. You have to be patient. Maybe they will understand the gospel in one day. Maybe it will take days and weeks and months and years for them to repent. That does not negate the fact that they need the gospel. It doesn't negate the fact that we need to share the gospel with them. And it doesn't mean that they're not under judgment from God. So if you're an unsaved person, this is a warning to you to repent. But for us, as we share the gospel, we remember that these people need to hear the word of God and that we should be faithful to share it with them. Let's look at this response then in verses 32 through 34. How would these people respond to the gospel? And we see that it's really a divided response. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Again, this idea of resurrection was especially foreign to the Athenians, to these pagan people. They had no concept of people being risen from the dead, Christ being risen from the dead. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went from their midst, but some joined him and believed. So we see a lot of people mocked. Some people said, hey, we'll hear more about this. And Paul has the opportunity to share more of the gospel with them. And some did believe. And two people are mentioned by name. The first is Dionysius, an Areopagite. An Areopagite was a councilman. He was one of the people who would listen to people share their religions and their philosophies on the Areopagus, which, was, which is sometimes called Mars Hill. It's where Paul went to defend Christianity to these people. He was a councilman. He was a leader in this area. So he is convinced and he believes. And then a woman named Demarius was also with them. We don't know who this woman was. She was probably a woman of importance. Usually women aren't mentioned by name in the New Testament unless they have some kind of importance like Lydia, the seller of purple. But we see this very divided response to Paul's gospel. It's a reminder to us that sometimes people won't repent right away. Sometimes it does take time for people to hear the gospel. As you share the gospel with others, you might have some believe that day. You might have some say, we'll hear more about this. I'll talk to you more about this gospel. And it takes longer. You might have people mock you and say they don't believe it and reject the gospel. But does that stop Paul from sharing it? No, he still continues to share it with 
these people and defend the faith to this pagan city. And so as we end chapter 17, we see Paul sharing the word of God. That's really what Acts 17 has been about. The Thessalonians received the word of God. They received it in affliction. They had other people who rejected Paul and he was ran out of town. The Bereans, they heard God's word. And it says they were more noble than the Thessalonians because they studied it out to see if these things were so. And the Athenians, the people in Athens, they had no concept for God. So Paul had to start from square one and explain to them the word of God. This is defending the faith. This is what I would call apologetics. There are men and women who give their lives to this study, debating, writing books, making videos, trying to prove that there is a God, trying to give reasons for our faith. And again, you need faith to believe in God's word, yes, That does not mean that our faith is unreasonable, that we don't have reasons for what we believe we do. So as Paul is doing this, as he's presenting the faith, I think we get a good snapshot, a good template for how we can defend the faith to others as well. You might not ever speak at a college defending God. You may never have a debate. You may never write a book. But you will probably, you will most definitely, not probably, have to defend the faith to others. And so as we think about how can we do apologetics today, how can we defend the faith in our world today, the first thing I want us to see is that we depend on the word of God. Don't be ashamed of it. Don't try to make excuses for it. Don't try to ignore it. Don't twist it. Depend on the word of God. The word of God has stood the test of time for thousands of years. It has been proven true thousands of times. I see people who try to defend God, but they try to do it apart from the Bible. And they say, well, I've got these theories or these evidences, and maybe they're not bad, but they don't stand on the word of God. Let me tell you something. You and I will die one day. Our ideas will probably die with us. The word of God will stand the test of time. So as you share the gospel with someone, as you defend the faith, we stand on the word of God of God. And we trust in it. We don't make excuses for it, but we recognize that this is what God has said. Depend on the word of God. Secondly, be confident, but be gracious. These are two different pitfalls that we can fall into when we're sharing the gospel. Sometimes we're not confident. We try to make excuses. We say, yeah, I know this is crazy, but you need to know this. Be confident and what you believe about God's word. It's the Bible. It's true. This is what we actually believe. We should be confident in what we believe, knowing that this is the truth. And yet, we should also be gracious. Some people, when they argue, when they have these debates, they resort to the tactics from the other side. They name-call, they lie, they slander, They're not gracious in how they talk. I think one of the best things that can be said about us, even if someone doesn't get saved, even if someone doesn't believe the gospel, is that when we shared it with them, we were gracious. Now recognize that the gospel by itself offends. You're telling someone that they're a sinner separated from God, that they can't do anything that pleases God in and of themselves. That's going to offend people. But we can still do it in a gracious way way with how we talk with how we interact with people 
with how we handle ourselves on social media in person. We need to be confident, but we need to be gracious. And then lastly, recognize the role of faith in salvation. Recognize the role of faith in salvation. As I've studied apologetics, why we defend the faith, there are great arguments and tests that God is true and all of these wonderful books that have been written and talks that have been given. But it all comes down to faith. We're saved. What does Ephesians 2.8 say? We're saved by grace through faith. At the end of the day, you can present someone with great arguments. You can give a great talk. You can win a debate. You can do all of these things. But it still takes faith. It's not of ourselves It is a gift of God. So we pray. We pray that God would give people faith to believe and understand the gospel. And when someone doesn't believe, we don't get frustrated. We don't get upset. We recognize that nothing we can say is going to convince someone on our own. But it is by the faith that God gives that people would repent and believe the gospel. So as we are witnessing to others in the world as we're sharing the gospel with others, may we be able to defend God's word and not be fearful to do so, knowing that God's word can stand on its own and that we can be confident in what we believe about God and his gospel. Let's pray.